Startup exits are the most sought after events in Silicon Valley, but very few people get to experience them. Welcome to the Startup Exits podcast, where we chat with founders that started, ran, and sold a tech company to learn about how it all went down. This podcast is brought to you by Startup Soft. Hey, everybody, this is your host, Andrew Vasilik, and you're listening to Startup Exits where we chat with founders that started, ran, and sold a tech company to learn about how it actually all went down. Today, I'm joined by Sunny Vu. Welcome to the show, Sunny. Hi, Andrew. How you doing? Good, good. So you started a bunch of companies. Your first company, Firespot, was acquired by Ash Jeeves. Uh, your second company, Ega Matrix, went on to raise tens of millions of dollars. And your third company, Misfit Wearables, has just been an insane success. It's one of the most well-known uh, wearable brands out there, and it got acquired in 2015 by Fossil for a very humble sum of $250 million. Uh, so lots of very successful companies, and I think at this point it's safe to say that it wasn't luck. How do you come up with ideas? Ideas, well, I'll tell you, ideas are, it really is true that ideas are a dime a dozen. The most important thing really is getting great teams involved, um, surrounding yourself with people who are more competent, smarter, and uh, just as driven. So. Uh, that's really the core of it. As far as ideas go, um, it's all different from different uh, um, uh, from company to company. Uh, at Misfit, we really uh, just saw that there was a great there's a trend happening in this space of uh, having connected devices that are that people wear. Um, Fifteen years ago, ten years ago, uh, the notion was absurd, but you know, it's uh, now a normal thing. Um, but where you know the, the exact idea for the first product, the Misfit Shine, really came from uh, a lot of just reading, uh, checking out our competitors. So we actually read through thousands of of product reviews from uh, the other products that were in the market, you know, Fitbit, Jawbone, and whatnot. And um, that was where we learned about what we needed to build. So you've read thousands of reviews of the competition, and as you were reading them, what exactly were you looking for? We just wanted to learn what uh, people complained about uh, and what people wanted. You know, um, asking people for what they want is generally not a good idea in terms of you know product product design and and whatnot. You know, as they say, um, knowing what the customer wants is not their job. And uh, you know, so how do you do it other than what do you can do? Focus groups. You know, well, uh, the fastest way we thought was just reading through these reviews so we find out what is it that people wanted and it was it became very clear after really just a few not even we didn't even need to read a few thousand but we really just wanted to you know make sure we had our bases covered something that was comfortable that looked good data that they could understand easy to charge really durable you know it was actually i mean in hindsight it what they seem it seemed like pretty obvious points but uh when the when the user speaks it really uh it's, it's really uh can give you some profound insights so when you were starting Misfit, at that time, the wearable market was pretty much non-existent. It was very tiny. And as you put in one interview, that it was essentially a bunch of Silicon Valley geeks making wearable products for Silicon Valley geeks. Uh, so definitely wasn't for the masses. How did you know or did you know at all that uh, the wearable market would uh, would explode as to the point where it is now? Well, um, well, we didn't really know, no. Uh, we just had a, um, I guess we had a hunch uh, around that. Uh, it just seemed like a, I don't know, I, I guess there, we've missed enough trends, you know, the internet, mobile apps, 
uh, you know, like a number of things in the past. Uh, and uh, we weren't going to miss this one. So all of your companies have been in pretty different industries. Uh, like Firespout was uh, about natural language processing. Agametrix was very hardcore healthcare. And Misfit is in the, the wearables industry. Uh, how do you look at industries and what, what made you want to go into these markets? You know, we generally have a heavy science bent, you know, something that has um, technologies that's based on some sort of scientific breakthrough. You know, back in the day in 1997, when we were doing Firespout, we were doing using machine language, machine learning to help uh, uh, boost the performance of natural language processing systems. This was before machine learning was a thing. It, it was perhaps before machine learning really worked, to be honest. It was very hard back then. Um, you needed PhDs and just, you know, really, uh, top notch folks to do it. You know, now 2019, there are packages that high school kids can use to, to build their own applications. It's amazing how things have really developed, but we like to, to work with things that are where it's, it's hard to, uh, reproduce. It gives us an, a, a, an unfair advantage on a technological basis. So, um, whether it's electrochemistry or natural language processing or algorithms for wearable technology, uh, these were all, um, I guess, you know, moats, uh, defensive moats for us. So as you were getting into these very tech and very science heavy uh, fields, did you have any prior experience in these areas? Uh, yeah, the first one was actually uh, stuff that I'd worked on uh, during my PhD uh, studies. And uh, the second one was my co-founder uh, Sridhar's um, PhD work and his his scientific background. And third one, you know, it's just a matter of um, even though we had like technological advantages in terms of better algorithms and whatnot and better power management, um, the core really was focused around just building beautiful products and a beautiful and a, a brand that people would fall in that could relate to, resonate with, and just really fall in love with. Um, and so it was honestly, it was primarily a design and branding uh, focus. So you did your PhD at MIT, and one of your advisors as you were doing your PhD was uh, Noam Chomsky. And beside Noam, you also had a chance to meet and work alongside uh, some very incredible people like Bill Gates, Steve Jobs, John Scully, Vinod Khosla. Uh, who would you say impacted you the most as an entrepreneur? Uh, well, different people, I think, uh, influenced, you know, had different, you know, taught me different things. I feel like you've just had the the honor and the just great fortune to have some great mentors, you know, um, you know, with John, um, I feel like I really learned about, uh, consumer marketing and communicating and, uh, and aspirational branding and just things that, I don't know, you don't learn in, uh, in PhD school, you know, um, Noam was an amazing advisor and teacher, you know, uh, we used to speak, talk about, politics just as much as linguistics and so that was a lot of fun um even though it's, it's always been a, a a great mentor you know uh through building firespout he wasn't uh you know the, the nice thing is he was always very honest about what he what he thought and uh so I, I knew i could always rely on him for for honest feedback and um just a, a, a great lateral thinker 
Um, and then with Bill Gates, you know, we, we, I, I, it was like a, a nine minute conversation. Uh, but it was one of those things that I, uh, times when I, that I'll, that I'll never forget. Um, when uh, I asked him, you know, as an inventor, as an entrepreneur, what should I be working on? And he said that, you know, work on uh, great uh, products that could benefit the masses, you know, make technology really, really inexpensive. And uh, I thought, I, I don't know, I, you know, most people are like, oh, make stuff that's really breakthrough and amazing, great ex user experience, whatever. But he, he was focused on serving the the least of these, you know, the the bottom billion, the the poor, and uh, making technology accessible and and just really useful. I thought that was just so. It just seemed so obvious, but um, it's just really influenced a lot of my thinking over the years. And I think in a way, Misfit did that because it was a very affordable option compared to what was out on the market at that time. Um, in the early days of the company, Misfit has been pretty heavily influenced by Apple. Uh, the name itself comes from a very famous Apple ad, Think Different. Uh, it starts off by saying, here's to the crazy ones, to the misfits. Uh, the company was also founded on the day that Steve Jobs died. And of course, John Scully uh, is one of your co-founders who is a previous CEO of Apple. Uh, what was it about Apple that attracted you? Yeah, this uh, back in the day, we were big Apple fans, still are. And uh, um I don't know. It's just, uh, I, I feel like they really know. I, I mean, they, it's just a brand that people f uh, fell in love with. And so we were really um, inspired by that, uh, how to build something that was more than just how to communicate a, a, an experience that was more than just megabytes and gigabits, you know, and um, build a product and brand that people would fall in love with. And I feel like that they mastered that playbook on on how to do that. So, um, yeah. So we so we've always been fans of the commercial and whatnot, and and everything kind of happened. I mean, I it must have. I think it was meant to be. You know, like the fact that we founded it on Steve Jobs the, the day that he died, and the fact that John happened to be around and available and was open to working with us. Um, it, it just seemed to all come together. You speak a lot about people, uh, people that surround you, the team. Uh, as well as values. And in one of your earlier interviews, you mentioned that uh, in the early days uh, with your first companies, you used to mostly think about what and how. Uh, but as you grew as an entrepreneur in your later companies, you switch your thinking towards who and why. Um, and this is again within the context of people and values. Uh, what was it about you, Sridhar and John that made you guys such a great team? Well, first of all, I think we're all really different. Um... And we brought different things to the table. I mean, I was the only operating founder, but having them on board, on the board, and also just, you know, a text message away and um, showed the cry on uh, advice, advice when I needed it from from folks who I knew had my back. Uh, they played just such a key role in that regard. Um, Ultimately, the my the the operating co-founder in a sense was really my wife, you know, because she was the founding co uh, COO and CFO with me. So the two of us really were the ones who who drove the business. Having um, uh, John and Shreed really brought uh, some expertise and 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 uh, firepower that was like you just couldn't buy anywhere, you know. Um, Shreedar with his expertise in IP and and, and technology is just really valuable. Um, always a person I could, you know, kind of back off to and, and get great, some great insights. Uh, and John, of course, was really a mentor to, to all of us. And, 
And, you know, if we needed to to uh, have an event and have people show up, we just say, hey, you know, John Scully's coming. So we use that. No, we try not to do that too much. But, uh, you know, on uh, we, we had like a couple of recruiting trips where we did that and it totally worked. Yeah. Yeah, I could definitely see that. Uh, you mentioned that uh, you guys are all pretty different. Uh, what is it about you, in your opinion, that makes you uh, so successful as a founder? Um, me, I honestly, I, I think... Uh, uh, I've just gotten incredibly lucky, <laughs> you know. There's this uh, whole imposter syndrome out there, and I feel like I'm 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 chronic. I have the chronic case of that. Um, but uh, having awesome team members around uh, that I could count on, I think, has been, you know, a large part of uh, where we've ended up uh, where we are right now. So, um, and to this day, I've still worked with many of these people with the same people. So it's really a journey and working with people that you trust, that you like, uh, and that are just supremely confident or competent. Yeah. And uh, as far as putting this team together uh, and getting everybody, uh, essentially convincing everybody to work with you, uh, there's a lot of selling that comes in place. Um, and selling in general is one of the most important skill sets of an entrepreneur. Mm. Uh, how did you learn how to sell? Um, well, they certainly didn't teach it in immigrant school. Okay. but. Uh, uh, I think mostly practice. Um, it just took me a while to realize that that's kind of what founders do day in and day out all the time. You're not programming, you're not designing, you're not building models. You're, you're selling, you know, you're constantly trying to convince people to do stuff that they wouldn't normally do. You're trying to convince, uh, you know, um, potential employees to join for no job security, half the pay you're trying to get, uh, the media to write about you when there's nothing to write about. You're trying to get investors to invest in you when it's way too early. You know, this is what you do day in, day out. And so whether you like doing it or whether you're good at it or not, you better, yeah, I mean, that's, I get used to doing it because that's mostly what you're going to be doing as a founder. Yeah, I definitely agree that sales is just ingrained uh, into so many aspects of what founders do on a day-to-day basis. On the topic of sales, uh, Misfit had some crazy impressive partnerships uh, with very large brands like Victoria's Secret, Coca-Cola, um, Swarovski. Uh, what advice would you give to founders that are running early stage unknown startups as far as how do they get these kind of deals? Like how do they even get a meeting with some of these large brands? Uh, it's a good question. I think, um, uh, well, first of all, Take advantage of your network, your advisors, your board, your investors, and just keep asking for, yeah, um, ask for these introductions. You know, an introduction goes a really long way. Um, In a number of these cases, we just cold called, man. We just like called until they just got so annoyed that they just had to answer the 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 phone. Um, It's kind of it's it's. Uh, yeah, so there were a number of, I mean, a, a lot of times they, they, you just never get a response and that's fine. Um, but in many cases, you really just need one. You know, we had that, you know, you needed that first break. You get that first break. For us, it was, it happened to be Victoria's Secret. And then, you know, then Swarovski came, then Speedo came, then Coca-Cola. I actually know Coca-Cola was our first. And um, the more you do, the I think the easier it gets because then you, you, you know, you have a track record of, um, but ultimately I think uh, having just a, uh, making it really, really easy for companies to say yes and um, having no risk on their side uh, and no cost 
to start with. Um, I think that's one way to to get these things done because you know folks are pretty risk averse at big companies, so you got to make it really easy for them to to say yes without having to take too much risk. And then over time, as you get to know them uh, and you develop the relationship, you know I, I think you can make it it can become more and more lucrative. That's what happened with Coca Cola. You know, we just started out honestly as friends, and then we got to know them. And then we did something small with them. We did this My Coke Rewards thing. It was a tiny little program with them. And then one thing led to another. And then we're before we knew it, we we're at the World Cup and the Olympics with with uh, with Coca Cola. It was amazing. At the time of the acquisition, you guys were a team of over 250 people, uh, spread across Silicon Valley uh, as well as Vietnam. What made you want to set up a remote team? Yeah, so we had about 45 in the U.S., 40, 45, and then the rest were in Asia. So about um, five-sixths of the team was it was based in Asia, uh, between uh, Beijing, Shenzhen, and Vietnam. Um, so in a sense, the San Francisco team was kind of the remote team. So why set up in San Francisco? I'm being a little uh, facetious here, but uh, it was really a bi-coastal team, Asia, U.S., um, and uh, you know, we basically we wanted to to have a uh, um, an unfair advantage where in the, each of the places that we um, recruited for. So what we did was we uh, try to f- focus on a few roles at a time. So uh, in a per location. Uh, so you know, if you're building a wearables company, man, there's a lot of kind of job titles to recruit for, you know, all the way from hardware and software engineer and cloud engineer and then designers and product managers and salespeople, the supply chain, logistics. I mean, there's just a lot of job descriptions. It's not like you can just hire 50 software engineers and you're done, right? It's uh, the whole the whole gamut. So we, um, but what we did was we divide by, um, at first we divided by function. So, you know, in San Francisco, we're mostly hiring hardware and some firmware folks. And we did software in Vietnam. And then over time, each of the offices became more more standalone. Uh, but it was really so that we can get a competitive advantage in, in, in recruiting and to be able to move faster. I like one of the things that you mentioned about um, going remote, uh, that a lot of companies, when they go remote, they expect to get cheap talent. Uh, and that's pretty much exactly what they get. So your approach was uh, to essentially treat the remote team as if you were building your in-house team. And I think when it comes to remote work, structure and attitude is very important. Let's talk a little bit about your exits. Uh, you've had two, your first company, Firespout, uh, to Ask Jeeves and Misfit to Fossil. Could you tell us a little bit more about how these acquisitions went down? Sure. Um, the first one, we, um, you know, uh, they, they, they wanted uh, a linguistic tech software tech and there aren't there weren't that many uh, options in town at the time that remember this is like 2000 2001 right so quite early in the nlp days it didn't feel early it felt like everybody was working on nlp at the time but you know not not really so that was uh so it was just kind of a natural fit you know because search was one of the areas that we were looking to, to serve um we weren't really planning on an acquisition but it, it just kind of happened because uh what the, basically the enterprise customer ended up becoming the the acquirer and then at agamatrix when we did the blood glucose monitoring stuff they never acquired the company sanofi but they um acquired a, it was like a, a very deep and long-term relationship um that where they uh got a lot of our technology uh for the blood glucose monitoring uh electrochemistry stuff and again it started out with a a conversation 
uh, a friendship and then developing into a partnership that became very deep and it's still running to this day. Gosh, it's been almost 10 years uh, partnership. So, uh, you know, it's very successful in that regard. Um, and then at, at, uh, at Misfit, uh, it started out with uh, us approaching a number of the brands which were part of Fossil Group, which I didn't really know that were part of Fossil Group at the time. We were, we were approaching Michael Kors and Kate Spade at the time. And um, before we knew it, we, we got a call from, from Fossil, from the great folks there uh looking to do a commercial partnership and then one thing led to another and it just ended up um, as an acquisition so again it, it i don't know how intentional these things are um, but i feel like it often starts with a conversation and or a relationship and then it builds and to a partnership and then before you know it people want to buy you and um you know, for for various reasons, control or exclusivity, da da da. You know, there's lots of reasons why a company would want to acquire yours. And was there anything that you learned with the first two cases that uh, helped you with the fossil acquisition? Um, well, I think uh, the most important things that I've learned over time was that you know there just has to be a very clear value why um, uh, why another company would want to acquire you for, for that to really happen. You know, it has to. Can't just because uh, I, I don't know. It's yeah. So there's got to be very clear value added to to the company. I guess that's an obvious point. Um, but the other thing is, you never really know why. Um, it, it's it's often quite opaque the reasons for why um, another, one company would buy another. You know, it, it, it on the surface of it, there may be some obviousness. But um, you never know. Like maybe the board is pushing the CEO to do it. Maybe uh, the Wall Street. Maybe they they just want to have something to say so that their stock would would go up. Maybe um, you know they're feeling threatened by a competitor and they need a response now. And or, or maybe their 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 managers are are need to be replaced. And so there are aqua hires that will go in and basically is a way of removing. Of of switching out management. I mean, there's a bunch of reasons, and but to the startup, it's it's not always obvious. So I wouldn't make assumptions. I guess that's my point. And the fossil acquisition uh, went through towards the end of 2015. About six months prior to that, Apple released their first version of the Apple Watch. Did that influence the acquisition in any way? You know, the the world was mo- it was moving towards wearables. It was very obvious, um, and uh, I think. Uh, Fossil just had a lot of uh, foresight uh, in uh, in this space. You know, they've been doing watches and stuff for for a while. That actually experimented with wearables. They were among the first innovators in, in wearables. They 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 built some of the first smart watches. A few people know that um, back you know like dec- like a decade ago. Um, but it wasn't until you know 2011, 12, 13 when things where this wearables really became a thing. And so um, I don't know what Apple Watch had anything to do with it, but um, I just I, I do know that it's been a long-standing interest for the company. And what was the transition like to Fossil? Certainly, uh, very different. You know, corporate life versus startup life. You know, one year uh, in the wild and uh, with like no, no resources, and then the other in, in, in and completely responsible for everything from rent to the keeping the lights on and paying you know feeding two hundred forty mouths. Uh, but uh, once you're in uh, a larger uh, organization, there's um, you know more demands on 
um, you know, the expectations are different in terms of what you need to deliver revenue wise and all that stuff. Uh, but you also have more resources, uh, you know, at your disposal. Um, the biggest difference really is that, you know, now you got to work with other teams that you don't have, you know, necessarily the same level of influence on, uh, you know, at least from a, from a, um, role perspective. Um, and so, uh, I, for me, it taught, uh, one of the things I learned was, uh, influence, uh, you know, um, getting things done through, through influence, which I don't know, was pretty valuable. Yeah. And I guess in some ways it goes back to the sales and persuasion, uh, topic that we discussed earlier in the podcast. Yeah. Uh, so an acquisition is a very sought after event. And that's pretty much the idea behind the show that uh, founders are looking for an acquisition or, or an IPO investors, early employees. Uh, so it's a very positive event in general. Uh, but on the other hand, you're in some ways letting go of a baby that you created, your company. Are exits in any way bittersweet for you? Um, yeah, it, 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 I guess they would be if you didn't get paid very much. Um, but I mean, if someone pays you a proper um, amount for your baby, it's it's their baby, you know. Um, and I don't know. I, I hear about founders getting bitter, or whatever, because they're letting go of their baby. I'm like, but dude, you just got paid like whatever amount of money. They they that's they they have the right to that. Why are you bitter, man? Like, go and start another company or something, you know? Uh, and be grateful for this opportunity. So I, I, I think um, I, I cannot relate to the bitter, bittersweet thing. It's sweet. So the last question is I want to focus on the future. Uh, where do you see the wearables market heading? Well, one of the things I've always said about the wearables market is that wearables just need to be more and more useful. You know, they have to be useful, right? Um, for, uh, quite, for quite some time, they just weren't that useful. They didn't really do much, you know? Um, you know, activity tracking, I guess the notifications was kind of cool, okay? But they're not like um, what I used to say in the past. Um, they wouldn't pass my turnaround test. If you forgot it and you're halfway to work at home, you know, you wouldn't turn around to get it. Whereas if you forgot your iPhone at home, you definitely turn around to get that. So um, for a long time, wearables didn't pass that. And uh, But I think they're getting closer and closer to the point where you think, well, you, you know, maybe I will turn around uh, and, and get my wearable. I happen to be a watch guy. I love watches. Um, I don't have that many, but I have a few that I really like. I might turn around for my Swiss mechanical watch, you know, just because oh, it's part of who I am. and. Um, it's important. Uh, you know, I haven't, uh, gotten that used to a smartwatch yet, but maybe if I put a lot of my data in it or uh, relied on some of the functions, then maybe I would turn around. I don't know. But, uh, you know, I, I think the, the future is one where wearables will become more and more useful. Maybe it's healthcare, maybe it's payments and identity. Maybe it's, um, Maybe it's habit formation, you know? Um, I'm not really sure, but, uh, you know, we'll see. Yeah, and uh, as was the case with Misfit regarding habit formation. So a lot of people are expecting AR uh, and these glasses to, to be pretty huge. What are your thoughts around that? I think, uh, well, first of all, I think VR is gonna be a lot bigger, um, at least in the short and medium term, uh, just because I don't think AR is good enough. Um, and not really sure why people would use AR other than for 
I don't know, just uh, um, to, to provide a cool experience. But is it really all that useful? I, I'm not really sure yet. Um, but, you know, it's only two, 2019. You know, let's give it two or three, five years. And I think we're going to be living in a completely different world. Certainly VR is um, uh, not just entertainment, but for education and, and for training and and uh, maybe for all sorts of uh, things that we haven't even thought of. I think that's definitely going to be happening in the years to come. AR, um, boy, it's, you know, I'm sure we're going to look back five, ten years from now and just think, I cannot believe we were in a world where there was no AR. Almost like there was a world with no, maybe not quite to the extent of the world without internet or mobile technology. But, uh, so we'll see. I'm, I'm, I can't wait to try out uh, some of the stuff that's out there. And batteries are, of course, a big constraint uh, when it comes to wearables and IoT. And it feels like there hasn't been any sort of breakthrough in, uh, in batteries in what feels like forever. Uh, do you foresee any sort of significant advances in batteries in the future? Um, well, you know, I think, uh, I think, uh, physics is fair. You know, there's really a lot of, uh, a lot of limitations that we got to overcome, or we have to think about things that are, you know, uh, energy storage and, and, uh, and usage in a different way. Uh, we're in this electrochemistry paradigm. We've been in it for decades and it really has been very little improvement uh, you know, it's like the opposite of Moore's law for batteries over the last hundred years. It, it, you know, the, the the improvements have been on average about three percent a year actually over the last hundred years, as opposed to Moore's law, which is what hundred percent every eighteen months. Um, and so, uh, as far as electrochemistry goes, I no, I do not see massive breakthroughs. Like I do not see you know um, energy densities increasing 10x anytime soon at least with electrochemistry now are we going to be walking around with micro nuclear reactors or little um i don't know uh, fuel cells or whatnot I, I i don't know but there are some cool developments out there you know there are a number of energy harvesting technologies out there um that i think uh can make it will make a difference uh you know one way is to have you know better batteries the other way is just to generate your own power um, so we've, we're familiar with solar technology, kinetic, you know, uh, motion based, um, but we're seeing uh, thermoelectric too, another modality that I think is quite promising. One company in particular that we've uh, uh, followed and been, invest- uh, been, been involved with called Matrix Industries. They've got some amazing uh, thermoelectric uh, material, material science and, and um, uh, energy harvesting technology that uh, can generate uh uh, basically harvest energy from ambient heat <clears throat> and uh they're prototyping it out on 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 watches right now but their real their main application is actually in in uh, iot and in air conditioning actually in, in cooling so uh we'll see where that goes yeah and that's one of the companies that you've backed uh with a firm that you founded that's right uh, alabaster that invests and advises deep tech uh startups that's right that's right that's that's one of the companies you know the um so ever since uh i um, over the last year, uh, not that I'm on on my own, uh, just been focusing on continuing to advise and invest in startups through our group Alabaster. Um, and the focus really is on deep tech, so companies with uh, technology that's based on some sort of scientific breakthrough, uh, and helping founders of those companies uh, build fast-growing businesses. 
And uh, about 70% of our focus right now is on uh, climate change reversal. So not all of it. Uh, we've largely exited consumer electronics. Certainly we've gone out of wearables. <clears throat> and uh, um, yeah, the focus is to work on stuff that uh, hopefully will have a planet level impact. Uh, one of those companies, Matrix, has this materials, uh, this new material that, that uh, like I said, um, harvests, harvests energy um, from ambient heat. So you've now switched uh, from entrepreneurship to more of a advisory and investor role. Uh, do you see yourself starting another company in the future? Yeah, probably, but not not right now. Um, you know, right now the focus is on supporting these founders of uh, these companies, um, uh, helping them grow, uh, advising them, and uh, to show our support. You know, where appropriate, we'll also invest from the family office. Um, and uh so that's what we've been doing over the last uh actually several years now i just do it full time yeah and i think there's a lot uh that you can probably learn from being on the sidelines uh, as an investor and advisor uh watching other entrepreneurs build their companies that you could take with you uh to your next venture uh sunny it was a pleasure to have you on the show thanks a lot for coming and sharing absolutely andrew thank you it was a pleasure thanks for listening if you enjoyed this episode subscribe and share it with your friends also tag a founder you'd like to see on the show. This podcast is brought to you by Startup Soft. To learn more, visit startupsoft.org.